Daniel chapter 2 and verse number 1. As I say, it's a long chapter, but we'll read the chapter nonetheless. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I had a dream and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever, tell your servants the dream and we will show the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. That's what you call giving an incentive. And if you show me the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honour. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. He answered a second time and said, Let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will show its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know with certainty that you're trying to gain time, because you see that the word from me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You've agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand, For no greater and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. Because of this the king was angry and very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out and the wise men were about to be killed and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the king of the king's, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon, he declared to Arioch, the king's captain, "Why is the decree of the king so urgent?" Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel, and Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. When Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven, and Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons, he removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. If I can turn the page, we'll continue the reading. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and might and have now made known to me what we asked of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter. Therefore Daniel went into Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went in and said thus to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show the king the interpretation. Then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste, and said thus to him, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. The king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen in this interpretation? Daniel answered the king and said, No wise men, enchanters and magicians or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. 
But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the vision of your head as you lay in bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed came thoughts of what would be after this, and he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. You saw, O king, and behold a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image in its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power and the might and the glory, and into whose hand he has given, wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all. You are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things, and like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet and toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom, but some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end. And it shall stand forever, just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation sure. Then, then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel, commanding that an offering and incense be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly, your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and the revealer of mysteries. For you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honours and many great gifts, made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request of the king and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained at the king's court. It's a long reading, but it has to be read because it really is the narrative upon which uh, the ministry, the, the teaching flows out this evening. Now, we learned last week from chapter one that Daniel is a special man, obviously, even though he's young, he's very young actually, and although he's very young, as I say, he's a special man and he is a special man that God has for special circumstances. 
And in chapter 2, we begin to see his calling from God unfold and being used by God in quite a dramatic way. God gave Daniel understanding in visions and dreams. And we begin to see this in chapter 2. Now, he had proved his character in chapter 1. In chapter 1, as we saw, even likely as a mid-teen, he showed great godliness, he showed great character and maturity, really, and resolve to serve his God in the midst of a very hostile environment. But now we're going to see Daniel in another crisis. And just as the first chapter was life-threatening, so is the second. Because Daniel's life and the life of his friends and all the others was at risk at the beginning of the chapter because of this dream and its interpretation. Now, when you come into chapter 2, we won't go down the verses, obviously, it'll take too long, but when you come into chapter 2, the context is this, that it's the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar. He's currently the king of Babylon, which meant globally he was known as the king of kings. His empire had conquered many empires and he sat upon the ultimate throne of ultimate authority over all of these other kingdoms. It probably was his third year because the the Babylonish way of counting the reigns of their king was they didn't count the year of their accession, they then counted thereafter. But it's described as the second year of his reign. Now here is a pagan king to whom God reveals a vision. And that shouldn't really be a surprise, I suppose, because Israel at this time was in a terrible state morally and spiritually. And that's why Daniel is where he is. And although they were God's special people into whom he had brought into into a, a covenant relationship with himself, and he had this special relationship with Israel, that relationship from Israel's side was dysfunctional. And as a consequence, they have been taken out of the land of promise into captivity. And Daniel was in captivity for that reason. So Israel is morally and spiritually bankrupt at this stage. It's a very low ebb. And the captivity of Israel began a period of history, which is referred to in Luke chapter 21 and verse 24 as the times of the Gentiles. And you find this, that the dominant... Uh, focus of world history has shifted from Jerusalem, biblically. Now it's elsewhere. And it really is going to remain elsewhere right through history from then until a future day. And the outline of that period is given in this vision that's given to Nebuchadnezzar. And we're going to see that in due course. Now it's not unusual for God to speak in dreams and visions. Um, and I said last week there is a difference between a dream and a vision. Usually a dream is something you have in your sleep and a vision is something you have when you're awake. But in dreams and visions, God spoke. And, for example, he spoke face to face with Moses, which was unusual. But with other prophets, it was visions and dreams. For example, Jacob, he saw a dream 
and Jacob's ladder and it promised them um, the land of Canaan. And God spoke to Pharaoh. And you remember the seven years of plenty, the seven years of famine. He spoke to Joseph in a dream. He spoke to Solomon in a dream. He spoke to one of the soldiers of the Midianites and gave a vision of encouragement for Gideon. God did that. And here he speaks to this pagan king. Now, the problem was he couldn't remember what the dream was. Therein lies the problem. And so what happens as the narrative unfolds in verse 2, as I mentioned, he gives this ultimatum to those who normally dealt in dreams and visions in the Babylonian culture. He calls them to himself in verse 2, the magicians, the astrologers, the sorcerers, the Chaldees. Just imagine, picture that. Now this is the king of kings as he was known as. He had ultimate supreme authority. Like no one has ever had since. He literally spoke the word of life and death without any recourse to any other authority. And that was what the Babylonian Empire was like. And what he had was these people, magicians, astrologers, sorcerers and Chaldeans, and he sought wisdom and counsel from all of these different people. Now, who were they? Magicians. Now, it's not the kind of magician that you might have got on TV where, you know, trying to saw someone in half and that kind of thing. Not that sort of magician. Really, the idea is this would be much more academic, probably more to do with the occult. And then you have astrologers. You know, the modern day equivalents, those who write the horoscopes. And it's all to do with the stars and signs and how the stars arranging themselves. They were called. And then the sorcerers, they were the enchanters. They were the ones that said they could communicate with the dead. And then you had the Chaldeans. They were the wisest of the wise. They were the most knowledgeable in arts and science. So you've really got, in that day, all the great and good of religion, of science, of the arts, of philosophy. That's them all. It's the sort of ones who've got the most, in a modern day uh, culture, the greatest podcasts and the greatest hits. They, they got them right round them. The influencers, the wise of the day. And he says to them, I dreamed a dream. And my spirit was troubled to know the dream. Now, this wasn't an unusual thing to ask the meaning of a dream in that context. I read this, that the Chaldeans that is Babylon, had a dream-reading system. It was a serious thing. And within their culture, if you had a dream, you kept a record of it. And they charted how a person's life went after you had a certain dream. And so they interpreted the significance of a certain dream by what then happened in your life. You know, if you were, I don't know what sort of dreams you have, dear. I can't ask you, I can't ask you, Raymond, what sort of dreams you have. But if you have dreams of someone running, chasing a cat down the main street in Bridge Way or whatever, and all the rest of it, and you had some weird thing going on, and then something really weird happened in your life, they would interpret that's what that meant. They would record it, and that then became a thing. So people would learn what dreams meant. And then if you had a certain dream, you'd be like, oh, no, this is going to happen to me. Or it might be good, it might be bad. It was a big deal. And actually, they had massive libraries with what they called dream manuals. The problem was just this. They were experts in it. But he couldn't remember the dream. 
So they couldn't interpret the dream using all of those resources that they had and bringing it to bear upon the dream. So they weren't phased by having to interpret a dream. They were phased by not knowing the dream and therefore not being able to interpret it. That is the significant problem. Now, Nebuchadnezzar is not letting them off of that, and um, he is going to bring a severe penalty upon them if they don't tell him what the dream was. He thinks they're having him on anyway, um, and this is going to test whether their interpretation is valid or not. Can they know the dream as well as the interpretation? Now, when you come down to verse number 10 says that the Chaldeans were answering the king, there's not a man upon the earth that can show the king's matter, the, and so on. And he, they're basically saying to the king, you're being unreasonable. No other king would ask such a thing. And the king brings them to a point where they admit something significant, that no man on the earth can do this thing. Now, I think it's important to think about the cultural connection with our culture today, because the Babylonish culture is not far removed from our culture. Especially when you have such a vast array of philosophical worldviews today. And they're all clamouring for attention. Some of them are extreme and some not. You this whole critical theory stuff that's going on at the moment, and there's all sorts of philosophies that come to the fore uh, and gain attention and discussion and debate and influence culture and then fade away and are replaced by another. But it's interesting that what was going on in Babylon is not that far removed in principle to many of these cultural and philosophical viewpoints of our day. Whether it is the communication with the dead, that exists in our culture. People seeking to do that. Well, it is the whole stargazing stuff in a very serious way. People do that uh, and take it very seriously. Whether it is philosophy and humanistic debate and all the rest of it, they take that very seriously. But here they all admit this is something that no one on earth can do. And it's important that we understand that there are things that men cannot do. They cannot do them. Their experience told them there were limits to what they could do. They can pull out all the libraries, they can pull out all the fake stuff, but they cannot read someone's mind. And neither can Satan, by the way. He never has and he never will. You know, it's interesting when we think about some of the attributes of God, we actually perhaps attribute them to Satan. As if Satan knows all things. As if he knows what's in your thought processes. There's nothing in Scripture to indicate that. That he's able to read our minds and know our minds. He certainly can read our behaviour and he's an expert at reading behaviour. And by the way, when you give him pointers to your weaknesses in your behaviour, then these are noted by him. And you'll find that, for example, if you sin in one way, you'll find that you suddenly have opportunities to sin in that way much, much more. Because that behaviour has actually demonstrated a weakness, an evidence of a weakness in your thought process. 
And so it's interesting, but it's important to understand that Satan has limits upon his power, upon his ability, as does his agents. Those astrologers, those spiritists, those magicians, all of them, there was something they cannot do. They could not unlock the mind of the king. And they say this in verse number 11. The thing that the king asks is difficult. No one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. There's some expressions in this chapter you could spend a long time on, and that's one of them. But they're right again. The only place that that sort of information can be delivered is from the supernatural. And we understand the only place is from God himself, who knows all things. The Lord Jesus, when he was here, demonstrated that. John chapter 3. He did not give himself to men, for he knew what was in them. He knew the thought process. He knew their heart. He could read them. He didn't require just to read their behavior. Well, they're all under the sentence of death. And we want to come to this actual image in due course. But I just want to point out from verse 13 down to verse number 30. uh, Daniel's... um, Behaviour in the crisis. Now, remember what we learned in chapter 1. Remember what we learned about Daniel as a teenager. His resolve. Remember what we learned about his faith in his God. And his knowledge of God's word and law. And the wisdom to stand firm upon what was in revealed scripture and not to stand firm without bending in things that were not in Scripture. He was very specific about what he refused to do and what he did do. But here, here he is, and this is a big crisis. Here he is, and he is God's man in the moment. He has got a message. He's commissioned. He's going to reveal a great prophetic truth. It's a big moment for him. He's been prepared for this moment. Here he is. But notice certain things that characterise him in a crisis. Now, I don't know what you're like in a crisis. Maybe you are very calm. Or maybe you're a complete flapper in a crisis. I don't know. But it's interesting that he is probably 18 years old when this takes place. Maybe 19. Notice how calm he is, first of all. Verse 14 to verse 16. Daniel is going to stand face to face, nose to nose with this king. The man sent to him, Arioch, is an executioner. He's a man who takes lives. And yet Daniel is not panicking. There's no despair. There's no frustration. There's just composure. And it actually says this in verse 14. Then Daniel replied with two things, prudence and discretion. And he's speaking to the man with the authority to take his life and the lives of the other wise men. Now, just put yourself in that scenario. I don't know if he was bearing a sword. I don't know if he'd other people do it. But here's a man who has come to kill him and others. And he speaks with prudence and discretion. It means this, with counsel and with wisdom. He's not blabbering a whole lot of words. He's measured, he's calm, he's precise, he speaks wisely, he speaks with counsel. 
And he says this basically, what's the big hurry? Slow down. He had the ability in the midst of panic to put everyone at ease and to talk sensibly in a crisis. Now where does that composure come from? Wouldn't we like to have that sort of composure in a crisis? Now, you may not face this sort of crisis. Hopefully none of us will face this sort of crisis. But you know what a crisis is. Everyone in this room will have faced crisis in their lives. You know, things that just happen and turn your world upside down in a moment. You know, you're thinking, you know, your mind's taken up with A, B, C, D, E, F, and you're, you're going along in life, and you think you're, you're busy, and you've got a lot on your plate, and your mind's, you know, you're thinking about this, you might be thinking about your, your financial situation, you might be thinking about your work commitments, you might be thinking about some family issues, you might be th- whatever it is, and you're going along, and then, boom, something happens. And you couldn't care less about your financial situation, and you don't give your work a thought, and suddenly something has happened, and you're in crisis, and it has literally dominated your whole mind, your whole life, and everything else seems less than it once did. That's a crisis. That happens to us. It's just happened to Daniel. This man's turned up. King is in a vision, a dream, and, and this issue, and, and here's Daniel, this man's come to take the lives of these men. And Daniel is calm in the crisis. Where does such composure come from? I think it comes, as we shall see later, it comes from his knowledge of God. His experiential knowledge of God. I mean, he will, when he praises God down in verse number 20, you can see that he knows God. And he knows God in a particular way here. He knows God's sovereign authority. He knows God is big and greater and in control and his trust is in his God. It's, that may sound uh, trite and it may sound superficial, but it's actually extremely significant for us as Christians. When a crisis comes, most of us run away from God. The Bible gets shut because we can't face opening it. When we do, the words don't make any sense to us. They're just words. Uh, and you, can, you can't formulate a single sentence of prayer because your mind's trying to work out this crisis. You see, we tend to flee from God in a crisis instead of flee toward him. Daniel's calm. His confidence is in God. Now, that doesn't just happen like that. He doesn't wake up at 19 and suddenly he's in a crisis and he says, Oh, do you know what? I've got some connection to God that goes back five years. This is a result of his routine, his rhythm, his life direction, his life disciplines. It's the day-to-day existence. It doesn't take him by surprise. It doesn't cast him down because this is Daniel day-to-day. He has a daily confidence in God. So when the crisis comes, he's calm. This has to be built over time. This has been built through his teenage years. You don't get this in 10 minutes. And the consequence of 
um, you listening to Bible teachers, to those in your family, those in your friends who, who are spiritually a wee bit down the road, maybe a wee bit more mature than you, and they give you advice and they, they tell you to listen, get daily disciplines established, read your Bible and pray and speak to Christians and get beside Christians and don't do that occasionally, but do it regularly. That is because that will build what you see evidenced here. It'll build it over time. He's calm in the crisis. But notice in verse 16, he is also courageous in the crisis. He does not back down. As I say, he's between 17 and 19. He's just finished three years of training. He's a Hebrew, which means he's a foreigner. Nebuchadnezzar is absolutely raging. Now, this is not like... Try and get this into your mind. This is not like... um, Boris Johnson raging on the, on the TV or something, foaming at the mouth about some issue, or some um, politician in our day who is worked up about something. We do not have individuals like this within our um, experience. This man, Nebuchadnezzar, he was accountable to no man for his actions or words. And if he was angry... If you looked at him the wrong way, you lost your life. And here is courage in the crisis. Where does this come from? He's absolutely confident in the gift that God had given him. You say, where did that come from? What gives him the confidence to say, I'll go in front of the king and I'll give the interpretation? That's what he says. Just get me in front of the king. He hasn't prayed about this particular issue. He ha- We're going to see that in a second. He doesn't know it. God hasn't revealed it to him. Where does the confidence and courage come from? The same place. He knows his God. And he knows what God has gifted him to do. We were having some uh, Bible teaching here locally about spiritual gifts. And you are never too young to seek out what God has gifted you to do and the area of life and the abilities that God's given you to serve him. You're never too young for that. And Daniel wasn't too young as a teenager, and he knew it. And then notice in verse 17 down to verse number 18, he sought fellowship in the crisis. So he was calm, he was courageous, but he didn't didn't think that he could do this on his own. He actually sought out his friends. And... He went to his friends, he made the matter known in verse 17, and they basically prayed together to seek mercy from the God of heaven. He's saying to his friends, we need to get before God for this. We need to pray. We need to get before the God that we know, the God that has given us the the calm and the, the courage, and we need to pray to this God, our God, in fellowship with each other. It's great if you've got friends that you can actually pray with. And it's great if you're the sort of friend who will pray with your friends. Don't be a 17, 18, or 19 year old, A, that never prays, and B, never talks to your friends about spiritual issues, or never prays with your friends about anything. So this is his first recourse. He didn't go to the house with Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah and say, Do you know what? We need a plan here. Let's get our heads together. No, they went and they sought God in prayer, seeking mercy. 
And they don't rely on their talents or anything like that, or their reputation, their learning. They actually seek God in prayer. Then notice verse 19, very quickly, verse 19 down. The mystery was revealed to Babylon in a vision of the night, and then Daniel thanks the Lord for it. And that would take a whole meeting to go through that, because he praises God for his eternality in verse 20, for his omniscience, his omnipotence in verse 20, for his sovereignty over the nations in verse 21, for his gifts of wisdom, knowledge, understanding in verse 21. He praises God for his revelation and knowledge in verse 22. He praises God for his faithfulness to his people, verse 23, and for answering his prayer. There is a, there's a lot in that. He knows God. And he's giving thanks to God for his character and for answering his prayer. I wonder just, if I was to go back when I was 19, and maybe some of you here are 19 as well, around about my age, what kind of things do I know about God? If I'm going to praise him. Seriously, what, what exactly do I know about God? I know a lot about a lot of things when I'm 19, and I think I know more than I actually do about a lot of things, but... You, as a teenager, as a late teenager, take in information from a variety of sources and have access to more information than any time, I think, in history. And so you're always engaged with information. You're always. All day. From the minute you get up until the minute you go to sleep, you are taking in information in one way or another, usually through your phone or whatever. How much do you know, do I know, about God? Quite a challenge. Well, notice in verse 24, he also had compassion in his crisis. He's controlled the whole situation now in verse 24. He goes and sees the guy who's come to kill him, and he says, look, don't destroy the wise men of Babylon, which is interesting. You know, he may have taken the opportunity of saying, you know what, there's, there's four of us here, who know this big secret and the rest of them are complete frauds. Now is the time to wipe them off the face of the earth. Clear them out. No, he doesn't do that. He countermands the order from the king and he saves the lives of the wise men. He's marked by compassion for others in a crisis. You know, sometimes when we're in a crisis, we become so self-focused, we lose compassion for other people. We only care. It's like a survival instinct about ourselves. But notice in verse 28, his humility. And so Daniel, in verse 27, answers the king and so forth. He says, no, you're right. No, no wise men, enchanters, magicians can show the king this. And he doesn't take credit himself. He says, this comes from God. There is a God in heaven. And he demonstrates humility. God is the revealer of secrets. God has done it for his own purpose. Now bring all that together. It's just a wee practical point of what I want to speak on tonight. And see Daniel in the crisis. Maybe you're in crisis tonight. Maybe you've had a bad day. Or maybe tomorrow you'll have a bad day. Or maybe this time next year you'll have a bad day. One thing's for certain, you're going to have some bad days. 
It's not, will you have a crisis? It's, how will you be in the crisis? As a Christian. Calm or completely flustered and not for six. Courageous to do the right thing. Will you seek fellowship because you are in relationship and friendship with the sort of people who will pray with you in the crisis? And when God brings you through the crisis and that can happen in so many ways with so many outcomes, will you praise him because you know him? Will you not become steely and hard? Will you be compassionate? And will you demonstrate a bit of humility? That's the lesson from the crisis. Now let's look at the the dream. This is a different thing. So from verse 36 down to verse 46, um, you have the interpretation of this dream. And again, the text is so large that I don't want to go down at all, but you remember this, the, the, the dream was of uh, an image and it had different component parts, but it was one image. And the image is one entity at the beginning and at the end it's spoken of also when it's destroyed as one entity, ultimately. And so there's a cohesion to this image, both in its... Um, first sight as a full image and in its destruction as it goes to chaff in the wind it's not just the last bit that goes to chaff and it all does and so its destruction is seen as a, a destruction of a cohesive thing and the interpretation of this and it's, it's very important that we understand this some people look at these sorts of dreams and their interpretation and don't connect the context of them, take them out of the context and get lost in the interpretation. Keep it in its context. What is its context? This prophetic dream concerns at that time present and future nations. Gentile nations. But these particular Gentile nations were empires and are mentioned because of the relationship to the nation of Israel. It's not every nation globally that's mentioned here. These have a particular connection to Israel. And it is not because of their relative importance or timescale in the history of mankind around the world that they're mentioned. This is not a comprehensive description of all empires. I'm pretty sure the British one isn't in here. And the American one, which is fading fast, isn't in here either. And the Soviet Union isn't in here. You see, we're going to see that these empires have a direct bearing in the Gentile domination of Israel. Following the fall of Jerusalem and extending to the coming Messiah to reign. And the re-establishment of Israel and the Israel um, kingdom with Christ um, on earth. Now notice this. Let me try and uh, share this. 
I found this fascinating just studying this. The first kingdom um, is a head of gold. Now that was a fitting analogy for Nebuchadnezzar's Babylonian Empire. He ruled, as I mentioned, autocratically, and he ruled according to his own whims. The kingdoms that would follow would not have such singular authority as he had. Now, despite that, his authority is delegated, and it's delegated because Daniel points out, and I can't go through the scriptures just saying this in a general sense, you'll pick it up in the text. Daniel points out that Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom, his power, his glory, his strength, his everything, came to him as a gift from the God of heavens. So although it's ultimate, it's still ultimate delegated authority. comes from God. Uh, Daniel... It speaks about Nebuchadnezzar specifically here. And the extent of his rule is mentioned. Now, he didn't rule over the whole earth. And neither did he control all the birds and the beasts and the whole of the earth. Now, it might be hyperbole, exaggerating the king's power, making the point about the kingdom's superiority, but I don't think so. Keep in mind the context of the prophecy relating to kingdoms with authority and power over Israel, and that limits the wherever. And with regard to birds and beasts, God gave the king rule, dominion over them, but not control. There's a difference. God gave the same to man in Genesis 1 and verse 28. So that's the first kingdom. The second kingdom is mentioned in verse 39. Now more will be said about the second and third kingdom in future visions, particularly in chapters 7 and 8. But they are not identified here. So you cannot be absolutely certain of them. They're not identified. Most Bible scholars agree together on their identity, but it's not stated Having said that, the important point is that the second kingdom is inferior to the first. That's the point. It likely is the Medo-Persian Empire. Likely. According to all the theologians I read, which conquered Babylon in 539 BC. Now, this empire, the Medo-Persian Empire, controlled more territory, but was different from the Babylonian Empire because it was the partnership of the Medes and the Persians. And there are two distinct people groups that lacked the central authority and organisation that existed in Babylon. And the Medo-Persian Empire was also, by the way, characterised by silver because silver was the basis of its economic system and not gold. So it likely was Medo-Persian. The third kingdom in verse 39, what's this? That's characterised by bronze. And we'll rule over all the earth. Now, no kingdom yet has ruled over the entire earth, though there's a kingdom that will do that. And remember, in relation to Israel, this third kingdom is likely Greece. Likely. It used bronze extensively for its military equipment. And Alexander the Great defeated Persia um, in 331 BC and went on to conquer a much larger territory than either Babylon or Persia or even Rome. He died at a very young age. Was it 31? He died at a very young age and his four generals split the empire. These four generals fought it out until two dynasties arose from the four and these two dynasties were Egypt and Syria and they battled for centuries over what we now call the Middle East. That all came out of the Grecian Empire. Then you've got the fourth kingdom. 
Now, the fourth kingdom is given a lot more attention here in its description. Most scholars agree that it's Rome, characterised extensively by its use of iron in its equipment, not bronze. Now, Roman history is a story of brutal military conquest. We've all, we probably know more about Roman history than we know about any other um, history from those days. I'm sure I remember in Bridgeway Primary School in Primary 3, uh, Mrs Bryce, <laughs> who was my teacher then, who she and I met and were out tracting the other day, which is a bit strange, but um, I remember making a paper mache shield, Roman shield. I don't know if you did that in your primary school. Can you remember it yet? You did it, Phoebe? You're still doing it, didn't you? And uh, we learned all about the legions and whatnot. Well, listen, Roman history was a story of brutal conquest. Listen to this. Greece was defeated in 149 BC, Macedonia annexed in 146 BC, Syria in 64 BC, Jerusalem was captured in 63 BC, Egypt was annexed in 30 BC. It was a progressive domination of the Mediterranean. And while Rome did not expand as far as Alexander had gone, it did control more effectively all these areas that it did conquer. Now, there was iron strength, but it was made out of many parts, and, and, and it also broke into two constituent parts, hence the legs. And you have the, the Western Roman Empire and the Eastern Roman Empire based in Constantinople. Some of you are looking at me, I don't think some of you know anything about the Roman Empire. You should read about this stuff, it's very interesting. And the Western Empire, um, based in Rome, was defeated by the Visigoths and those who came down from Germany and the barbarian tribes, but the eastern part of the Roman Empire went on for hundreds of years longer, based in Constantinople, and they actually fell to the Turks as they invaded in through Constantinople later, hundreds of years later, which, by the way, is where all the Crusades came from as they sought to defend Constantinople um, way in the 10th and 11th century. Just reading a book about that, um, which seems a bit strange to say, but it's, it's quite good. Anyway, so this final kingdom, fourth kingdom, has these two legs, two parts of the Roman Empire, and so forth, and it is a mixed sort of thing with the clay and the iron as the Roman Empire became. The Roman Empire kind of, it was never conquered um, dramatically in a battle, it just disintegrated. So the question is just this, two things to note about it. In terms of prophetic revelation, remember this. The church age, historically, is a parenthesis in prophetic revelation in Scripture. Put brackets around it. It's not, in the, it's not described in the Old Testament at all. It doesn't appear at all in the Old Testament. And so it's a parenthesis, not known in the Old Testament. Therefore, when you take the parenthesis out of that prophetic timeline... When the church is gone, that fourth kingdom will exist in some form at that time. I don't know what it will be. People speak about a revived Roman Empire and they think that's ridiculous, a revived Roman Empire, and they assume it's the Catholic Church or they speak about how can soldiers be going about with sandals on and spears, a revived Roman Empire. But listen, the revived Roman Empire, so-called, the fourth kingdom take the church out of the equation and run the timeline from the beginning of the church to when the church is removed it could be economic it could be political it could be military we do not know what form that will take but we do know that is the kingdom that this 
coming kingdom, the final kingdom in verse 44 and verse 45, destroys. And this future kingdom arises when this final form of the fourth kingdom is active. That's the only way I can understand it. And so Daniel introduces another kingdom. And you've got these great kingdoms of the head of gold and the silver and the bronze and the iron. And they were mighty kingdoms. But there's another kingdom coming. And this is different. And this will subjugate and destroy Gentile power on earth in its totality. And establish a kingdom on earth that will fill the earth and will never be destroyed and will never be taken over and will never change. That's what's said of it. It will never be destroyed. It will never be succeeded. It will crush permanently the previous kingdoms. And by the way, Nebuchadnezzar would have been listening to this because it's described in terms that he would have understood. Listen to this. In the Babylonian kingdom, their main god was called Marduk. And the chief god of the Babylonians was that, Marduk, and they believed he'd come from a sacred mountain they referred to as the mountain of the lands. Their temples were built to resemble mountains. They believed that Marduk was in control of the wind. They called him the lord of the wind. And they thought of the earth as a great mountain, calling it the mountain house. Now, all of a sudden, Nebuchadnezzar is being told, no, actually, your God that you associate with mountains and all the rest of it, there is another kingdom coming that is a stone, not cut out by man, not made by man. And it says in verse 46, a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and it's going to break in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, the gold, and it's going to establish a kingdom on earth. On all of the earth. And it's a kingdom of divine origin. Now there's not a lot of detail there. But Nebuchadnezzar receives a glimpse of what is expanded in Daniel and elsewhere. That God has a plan. Man's kingdoms have been on a downward slope since Nebuchadnezzar's day. Diminishing in their authority, in their power, in their strength, in their solidity. Gradually, gradually, gradually diminishing in God's timeline connected to Israel, his timeline of the ages. And isn't it interesting that when you take the church age out, when we're raptured to glory, and the Old Testament, as if it were the Old Testament calendar, kicks in again and starts up again. And you've got the tribulation period and then you've got the coming and the manifestation of his glory uh, of the Lord Jesus Christ and he's coming with his saints and he's coming to reign and he'll come and he'll establish a kingdom on earth, literally, that will fill the earth in millennial glory. And he will sit in Jerusalem it's amazing. You read the end of Zechariah. You read into Revelation. You read this later on in Daniel as well. That there is coming a kingdom that will put into proper context the kingdoms of men. A marvellous, never-ending kingdom on earth that is of divine origin. 
You know, when we look at the kingdoms around us at the moment, they're all looking as if they're coats in a sugarly peg, all of them. I mean, you look at America and then you look at the economic situation, you read a bit about it and you're like, whoa. And then you think about China and its economic attack and its economic um, aggressive strategies throughout the world and the lending and all the rest of it and their construction. And you look at all these kingdoms and it seems so powerful. You see the military of the US and the economy of China and all the rest of it. They seem overwhelmingly powerful. Yet compared to this coming kingdom, they're but they're but dust. He comes and he grinds them into dust and they go away like chaff in the air. And we sometimes get intimidated by the kingdoms of, of this age and of this world. But we are part of that coming kingdom. Well, the news got to, let me finish with this, news got to Nebuchadnezzar and he, he falls on his face in verse 46 and he gives gifts, etc. to Daniel. And it looks as if Nebuchadnezzar's been saved using New Testament language. But then very soon you discover that he hasn't. It? And uh, he is mesmerised by God. He's impressed. Uh, and he's willing to accept that Daniel's God is a God. And a great God at that. But one of many gods. And Nebuchadnezzar is still blinded by his own religious system and pride till a future time when God personally humbles him in a dramatic fashion. So, some people are mesmerised by God and some people, you know, we were, she and I were down in London and last weekend and on Sunday afternoon uh, we went to, we didn't actually go to it, but we had to be in Hyde Park and went to Speaker's Corner, which was, I've never been there in my life. I don't think I'll ever go back, mind you, but I don't know how many folk were there, but there was a lot. And... I think everyone was speaking at the same time, shouting at the same time. I mean, literally shouting at each other. And, you know, you had all sorts of religious folks there from all sorts of religious backgrounds, all shouting and promoting their own thing. And I was, she and I were sitting in the deck chair, I was fascinated, I kept going over to listen to folk, but it sounded from about 100 yards away pathetic. It sounded terrible. You had these, it looked from a distance, just all that religious band just shouting at each other in total confusion. And then all of this other folk are sitting enjoying the sun. I thought, you know, that's the perception of Christianity, just one of many sort of religions and just chaos and just, you know, not anything that's worth respecting or anything like that. Listen, this coming day will be very different. Very different when the Lord returns and establishes his kingdom upon earth. A different story. So thanks for listening. We're going to look into Daniel as we go through these chapters and we'll find some practical things, but we'll also find these other um, issues to do with prophecy, which are interesting. And as usual with prophecy, you need to be careful not to go beyond what's actually revealed in Scripture. Let's just